I'd like to start with a little informal survey, and I'd like you to raise your hand if you're willing. If you don't want to, that's fine. I completely understand. But in the past year, meaning any time in 2013 or 2012, has anybody here lost a spouse to death? How about a parent? Anybody here lost a parent this past year to death? But a grandparent. Right. How about if I dare ask a child or a grandchild? Has anyone lost a child or a grandchild this past year? How about a close friend? Anyone here lost a close friend this past year to death? It's a number of you. Now that's just in one year. What if I expand this within the past five years? Have you lost, anyone here lost a loved one or friend of any kind? Anybody that was close to you to death? Look around for just a minute. Keep your hands up for just a second. Look around. That's a large number of people touched by the reality of death. Death is the great enemy of mankind. It's our one common enemy. It's the thing that seemingly all of us must experience. Death clouds and colors everything that we do. It's always there lurking around the corner. And as you saw by the show of hands, nobody escapes from experiencing the reality of death. Last week we talked about Saul and his suicide. And it was a great passage to be able to ask some really tough questions about suicide and to investigate the topic of suicide. But one of the downsides of our discussion of suicide is that in all those questions and in that discussion, one important fact, hard as it may seem to believe, might have been overlooked. And that's the fact that Saul died. Now... One of the reasons I think that that fact got overlooked is because sometimes when you ask questions about death, when you think about the subject of death, sometimes the mental activity of thinking about death crowds out the reality of the experience of death. And while you and I looked in 1 Samuel 31 at Saul's suicide and asked some theological questions and some practical questions about it, For the nation of Israel, they simply woke up the next morning and Saul was dead. The only king that they had ever known, the king who had led them for many years, yes, he had lots of flaws, but for the average Israelite, Saul had led them in great and powerful ways and now he was gone and not only Saul, but his son Jonathan, who was a true hero of Israel as well. They don't know that it was a suicide. They weren't asking some of the same questions we were asking. You find out if you read the text that an enterprising Amalekite decides to use Saul's suicide as an opportunity to try to advance himself, and so he lies about what actually happened. So we don't even, we're not even sure anybody knows that Saul committed suicide. All they know is that he's dead. And so this morning, we have the opportunity to sort of stop for a moment. We've been going through the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel, following the story. And this morning, what we want to do is we want to stop for a minute and think about 
death. Now, the great thing about First and Second Samuel is that it's a great story. You can start reading First Samuel and then find yourself not wanting to put, put the book down because the story is so engaging. But one of the problems with the story is is that as you're moving along, when you come to the death of Saul and Jonathan, yes, intellectually we can say, yeah, it's a shame that Saul committed suicide. And it's an even bigger tragedy that Jonathan, this great man of God, died. But hey, isn't Saul the villain so far in the story? The villain has gotten his just deserves. Now David can be king and there can be a way in which we can simply look at this as moving on with the narrative. But that's not how David approaches this event. David's not thinking about the bigger picture and the book that's going to be written about his life. He's not thinking about how this fits into a great story and how engaging the story might be. He's thinking about the fact that his father-in-law, Saul, is now dead. That the only king Israel's ever known, the person who establishes the monarchy, the man who gave David his start, who invited him into his court, who made him the captain of his guard. This man is now dead. And even worse than that, his dear friend Jonathan, his very heart, this kindred spirit, this person who meant the world to him is now dead. And so whereas we're thinking, okay, let's get on with the story. When does David become king? The bad guys got theirs. Now it's time for the good guys. That's not what David's doing. What David is doing is what we would expect him to do at this moment. He's grieving. Grieving over the reality of death. And so what we want to do this morning is stop the story and with David look at the subject of grieving. Not just how did David grieve for Saul and Jonathan, but how do we grieve for our parents, our spouses, our children, grandchildren, relatives, friends, mentors, neighbors who are taken by the reality of death. You see, we, went on, we, we want to be Christians who not only live well, but who grieve well. And so this morning we want to think about how do we grieve? And I'd like for you to take your Bible, if you will, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1, it's page 214. And if you are particularly thinking about a loved one as we go through this, I'm praying that the Lord would meet you in that while you're thinking through this and that God might walk with you as we think about the subject of grieving. First and second Samuel were originally written as one book. We broke them up for sort of ease of use, but they're written together as one book. And so 2 Samuel chapter 1 is not the start of a new book. It's simply the continuation of the story. And that last chapter of 1 Samuel narrated Saul's suicide. The first chapter of 2 Samuel narrates the events of how that news is portrayed and then records for us David's lament. And we read the lament beginning in verse 17 of 2 Samuel 1. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. 
Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you never, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there, on the mountains of Gilboa, the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. And the first observation for us this morning from this text is that it teaches us something about the need for grieving. The need for grieving. Ask yourself this question. Why is this lament in this story? Why is this lament recorded in Scripture? You don't need it for the story. There could simply have just been a line, David mourned for Saul and Jonathan, and we could have gotten on with the narrative. After all, First and Second Samuel are historical narratives. They're telling a story. There's nothing in this that advances the story whatsoever. Why would this be included in Scripture? Maybe we would say, well, because even in a psalm of lament like this, we can learn something about God. True, but where was God mentioned in the lament? He doesn't appear anywhere in here. There's no, his name's not in here at all. We don't find any verses in this lament that say, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. There's no verse in here that says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. There's no verse here that says, put your hope in the Lord. He is my refuge and my strength. Now look, those are all true. Those are Bible verses I just quoted you. But none of them are here. None of them are in this passage. More than that, not only does it not mention God, it's not positive at all. There's no hopeful statements here. There's no have joy in the midst of sorrow. There's none of those kinds of things. There's not peace in the midst of the storm. This is pure lament from beginning to end. It's sad the whole way through. Well, the question is, why would God put this in here if there's no hope, if there's no joy, if there's no encouragement, if there's no statements about God's sovereignty or God's bigger plan or the goodness of God or God's mercy? Why would God put this right here? He wrote this. Why is it here? It's because while it says nothing explicitly about God, it tells us something about what's going on in God's heart. You see, if David is grieving over the death of Saul and Jonathan, 
How does God feel? This lament is not just how David feels about death. It's about how God feels about death. You see, David's not more merciful than God. David is not more moved than God. His heart is not bigger than God's. This is an expression of a human's heart when it comes to death. But the reason God put it in his word is because it's a window into what's going on in God's heart. After all, many of us know the shortest verse in the English Bible. Jesus wept. But think for a minute about that verse. It's found in John chapter 11. Think about that story. In that context, Jesus' close friend Lazarus has died. But it's interesting if you go and look in John chapter 11 that right at the beginning of the chapter when we find out news that Lazarus is sick, not that he's died yet, when we find out that he's sick, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. So it's not like he weeps and then thinks, huh, is there anything I could do about this? Oh, wait a minute. I'm God. I could raise him from the dead. That's not what he does. That's been the plan from the beginning. And the verse doesn't appear before the plan. It comes after the plan. And here's the crazy thing. If it was me, when I come to this scene where Lazarus' two sisters and the whole village is just weeping and mourning and that sorrow, if I'm planning on raising that guy from the dead, you know what I do? I'm like, hey, don't worry. Don't cry. You're about to see something amazing. You're about, just gather around everybody. No, put the tissues away. You, trust me, you're not going to need them. That's what I would do. But that's not what Jesus does. He weeps almost uncontrollably. And you say, but he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. What's he crying about? He's grieving over the reality of death. Yes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yes, he'll raise everybody who's a believer in him ultimately from the dead. But Lazarus is going to die again. And just when we raised our hands, thousands of people here touched by the grief of death. And God himself is moved to grief over death. This is God's lament. This is God's sorrow. Death is the thing he hates most Look what it's done to his creation. Look what it's done to us. And when death happens, we see that there is a need to grieve. Jesus weeps. It's not wrong to grieve. It's actually wrong not to grieve. You know, we say, encouraging one another, we don't grieve as those without hope. That's true, but that doesn't mean we don't grieve. Sometimes we have a funeral service and it's for a Christian and we think that the Christian thing to do is to call it a celebration and a promotion and they moved on to heaven and look, trust me, all that stuff is true. But it doesn't eliminate the fact that God is grieved at death, that he weeps because of death and that you and I need to weep as well. That's why it says in verses 17 and 18, David wrote this lament and ordered the men of Judah to learn it. This is why he says in verse 24, O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. He commanding them, there is a need to grieve. 
And that if you raised your hand this morning and you're thinking about that loved one over this past year or five years or whenever it may be, the point is the goal is not to have a stiff upper, stiff upper lip. The goal is not to grin and bear it. We have a, def a definite need to grieve. It's part of what makes us human. It actually is part of what makes us like Christ, to weep in the face of death. There's a second observation, and this is the grace of grieving. We looked at the need for grieving now. I want you to understand the grace of grieving. Look in verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Now look, I get this about Jonathan, but why would David be saying this about Saul? I mean, where's the gloating? Where's the vindication? Where's the I told you so? Saul's David's enemy. He's been hunting him down. He's been trying to kill him. David has treated Saul in incredibly good ways and Saul has treated David in incredibly bad ways. Where's that in here? Where's the wicked get their comeuppance? It's not there. It's because David is choosing grace in grieving. That he actually is mourning for the death of Saul. Not just Jonathan, but the death of Saul. And that's because when David looks at Saul, he sees that what God had done for Saul and through Saul was bigger than what Saul was trying to do to David. And David looks past the wrongs that were meant for him to the God who was kind to Saul. He weeps when he looks at Saul because of a life that had so much promise, that went so badly. But his focus is not on the wrongs that were done to him. He's been on the run for his life. He's been wandering in the wilderness. He's been afraid. He's made bad choices because Saul has been persecuting him. But on Saul's deathbed, David is not rejoicing that his enemy has died. He's grieving that his father-in-law, the one who gave him his start, Israel's king, is gone. A man created in the image of God, who God loved enough to send his own son to die for. David is grieving at that. For many of us, the death of a parent or a spouse or an ex-spouse or a relative causes us no grief whatsoever because all we can think about is the pain that that person caused us. And that at their death, we focus on the ways in which that person wronged us. But there's a choice to be gracious in grieving. There's a choice not to focus on the ways in which we were wronged, but to focus on how God had still been present in the whole situation. To focus on how God did create this person in their image and that God through this person did do good things if nothing else, simply just gave us life. And there is a grace in grieving to choose not to focus on what our enemies have done to us, 
but God and what he's done for them. Likewise, for those for whom the death of a loved one was a very difficult experience, maybe you felt like you were left all alone and that you know intellectually it's not right. Your dad didn't really abandon you, but you feel that in his death that you were left all alone to fend for yourself. You feel like your spouse is gone and you're left carrying the burden and there can be an anger. There can be a bitterness there. Perhaps the death of a loved one was long and drawn out and very painful. Maybe it cost a lot financially. Maybe it cost a lot emotionally and spiritually. And there is a temptation at the point of grieving to focus on all those things and to think, man, I'm finally set free from that. Or why did this person have to die and leave me with all this? But there's a choice, a choice in grieving to focus not on the cost for us, but to focus on the, on the person and on the loss. And, and David makes that choice. And I want us to see out of this that even though Saul is his enemy, that Saul means him harm, that Saul has caused him much pain and anguish and grief, that in Saul's death, David chooses grace in his grief. Third observation about grieving is the communal nature of grief. The communal nature of grief. Notice verse 18, David ordered the men of Judah to be taught this lament, meaning every man in Judah was supposed to learn 2 Samuel chapter 1 so that they could grieve together. And have this as a common basis from which to grieve. In, in verse 24, O daughters of Israel, weep together. Saul's loss is a loss for Israel as a nation. Yes, he had his mistakes, but he was the first king. God had used him to do some mighty things. He says, O daughters, look at the clothes that you have. Look at the things that you've gotten. It's because of what God was doing in and through Saul that you have these things. Come together and weep for him as a community. And Jonathan, one of the great heroes of Israel's history, taken from them. And here is the indication and the implication that we are supposed to grieve together. The Bible says we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. No one is designed to bear grief alone. That's not the way God set this up. This is one of the real problems that all our advances in modern technology bring to us. See, posting a note on somebody's Facebook page when their friend has died, that's no substitute for going to the funeral home for a visitation or attending the funeral or even a phone call. When you tweet that someone has passed away, that's not what God means when he says weep when, with those who weep. That there is a communal aspect to grieving. That it's not something we just simply pass a quick text or a note. It's something that we gather together and we grieve together. A little over a week ago, a woman named Fran Johns passed away. Fran was an important part of this community here at Calvary Church. Some of you might not have known her, but all of you have been the beneficiaries of what she's done. For years, Fran would come at 8 about well, 7.30, we get together every Sunday morning and faithfully pray for this service, for what's going on right here. And until Alzheimer's uh, kept her from being able to do that, every week she was there. Fran was generous, generous to people in the church who were in need, generous to the work that God was doing, faithful in serving. 
her loss is a loss for our whole community. This morning, Tom prayed for uh, Linda McGarry. Again, some of you may not know her, but she was killed in a car accident. I think it was on Friday. She too is part of our prayer team. Every fourth Sunday of the month, she would take one of these service times and instead of doing anything else, would simply go into an office room downstairs with some other people and pray. Do you know there's people praying right now for this service? Praying that God would be present, praying that God would speak to us, praying that what would happen here would be beyond what is naturally explainable. Linda was one of those people. And last week was the fourth Sunday. Just last week, she was here praying for us. That's a loss for all of us. We weep with those who weep. There is a communal aspect to this. Tom mentioned Jeff and Tina Brooks. It was amazing on Friday to be over there at their house and to see their small group who had all come together to pray for this tragic loss of Jeff's parents. That's the way God meant it to be. There is this communal aspect. We weep with those who weep. But not only is there a communal aspect to grieving, our fourth observation is that there is a personal aspect for grieving. Verse 26, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. In the midst of this communal grief, David switches pronouns. He was addressing the people of Israel, the men of Judah, the daughters of Israel. He now switches from third person to first and second person. Jonathan is his very heart. This was his confidant, his kindred spirit. They were connected in, in, a, in, in a unique way. Yes, David will have other friends. Yes, David will have other people in his life, but there will never be another person like Jonathan. And David feels this grief individually and personally. That's why although we say that grief is communal and we grieve with other people, in some way we always grieve alone. We always grieve alone. No one will ever understand what Jonathan meant to David. That's what he's trying to say when he says about your love was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. He's trying to say, look, even if you tried to compare our friendship to what many other people know in their relationship in marriage, he's like, it's just different. It's different than that. And what he's basically saying is nobody understands. And you know what? He's right. I grieve the loss of my dad. I will never have another dad again. There's no replacement for that. There's no, there's, my relationship with my dad, no one will ever understand what it was. No one will ever understand. My brother and my sister, they grieve for my dad, but they grieve differently, not just in a different sort of way. They grieve differently because they had a different relationship, a good relationship, but it was different. Every relationship is different because every relationship we have with every other person is unique. Death touches each one of us uniquely. And you know what? You may have lost your dad, and I'm so sorry for that. 
but I'll never truly understand your relationship with your dad and you'll never truly understand my relationship with my dad. You may have lost a spouse. God may have brought another spouse into your life. Thank God for that, but that's not a replacement for the husband or wife that you lost. No one will ever replace that person. I may sympathize with you, but no one else will ever know what you've lost. There is this deeply personal aspect of grieving. And you know what? I'm glad. I'm glad that God acknowledges that. I'm glad that in his word I see that. Because you know, there is one person who does know. Because he's God, he does know what my dad meant to me. He does know what, I'm, what I've lost. He knows what you've lost. No other human will know. We can grieve together, but we always grieve alone. But in that aloneness, God meets us there. Amen. When we're all by ourselves, and we realize nobody else knows, there is one who does know. Which leads us to our final observation about grief. We've looked so far this morning at the need for grieving, the grace of grieving, the communal and personal natures of grieving, and our final point is the end of grieving. The end of grieving. Look with me into chapter two of 1 Samuel. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. In the course of time, what that means is that this season of grief that David was going through, at some point there was an end to it. How long? We don't know. It doesn't say. I think it doesn't say because it's different for every person. It's different for every relationship. But at some time, in the course of time, the season of grieving is meant to end. That doesn't mean you're not sad. It doesn't mean that there won't be moments in the future when you think about that person and you feel that loss. It doesn't mean that there won't come some time, some day in the future in which you are reduced to tears for some reason you have no idea why. But the season of grieving, it does need to come to an end. Now, what is it that pulls David out of his grieving? It's the fact that he's serving the Lord. God's called him to be king. The country needs him. David has to come to grips with the fact, although Jonathan was a superstar human being, for whatever reason, God has chosen to take Jonathan and leave David. That Saul is gone and David is here. And so at some point after the grieving, David has to realize, but God has left me here for a purpose. And my purpose is not to grieve perpetually. It is possible to mourn too long. It's possible for grief to become an idol. To become an end 
instead of a means to an end, to live in our grief and to feel that somehow if we stay in our grief, that we somehow have not forgotten this person, we somehow are connected to him, that if we just live in the grief, then that's a good thing. But when God rejected Saul as king and Samuel mourned for him, that was good. But at some point, God came to Samuel and said, that's enough. The time for mourning is done. We've got a kingdom to run. You need to go and anoint the next king. It's possible for us to grieve too long. God gave us the gift of grief to help us deal with the reality of death, but it's not where we're supposed to end up. It's not where we're supposed to stay. You say, but in the course of time, well, how do I know? When do I know when I'm supposed to be done? You do exactly what David did. You ask the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. I'm sure he had some sense in his soul that the period of grieving was ending. And so he goes to the Lord and says, is now the time? Is now the time for me to get on with the thing that you've called me to do? And the reason David is able to end his grief, because he's willing to serve. All of that is possible because God has already planned the eternal end of grief. That you and I are able to get up off our beds, we're able to get back to service, we're able to get back and do something. Because the way God has planned it, death will not ultimately win. And if you and I stay in our grief forever, death does win. But God has said death will not win and grief will not overcome you. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4, speaking about the new heavens and the new earth, it says, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The reason that grieving can end here is because ultimately grieving will end there. That God so pained at the destruction death has brought to his creation, resolved to himself become a human, that he might taste death for all of us so that those who believe in him cannot perish but have eternal life and that God himself will come and wipe away all grief from our hearts. That someday there will be a day in which we're not hit with the wave of sadness over the loss of a loved one. And when we get up off our grieving bed now, it is in hope and in expectation that that day is coming. And that's why we say with Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the new life that's possible through faith in him, we can actually say in the midst of our grief, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Death still hurts, but in Christ it cannot kill. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, 
because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And if you're here this morning and you are grieving, understand that there is a need for grieving. God created us to grieve. God himself grieves. grieves. Know that you have a choice to offer grace in the grieving process. That God has provided you with a community here to help you in grieving. Know too that if you are feeling absolutely alone in your grief, that there is some truth to that. But God is with you and meets you in that. And when the course of time comes and it's time for the season of grief to end, know that God has left you here for a reason. Maybe it's so that you can take care of the grandkids. Maybe it's so that you can teach a Sunday school class. Maybe it's so that you can be a witness at work. Maybe it's so that you can comfort others as they go through the grieving process. But know this, because of Christ, death will not win. And the labor that you and I do in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray together. Lord, death is a mighty enemy. Thank you for not leaving us in death's clutches. There was nothing that we could do to rescue ourselves, but you rescued us. And Lord, we simply praise your name. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who perhaps have tried to skip the grieving process. Maybe they have felt it was their Christian duty to try to put on a good face. Lord, I ask that you would allow them to see that your heart grieves and that you want them to grieve too. Lord, for those who may be here who have cheated the grieving process by allowing anger or bitterness at neglect or abuse or evil to cloud that process, Lord, I pray that they, like David, would offer grace. God, I thank you for this community. I thank you for the way, for Jeff and Tina, the way that the church has come around them, Lord. I thank you for the others and the way through small groups and other means that you have allowed us to not grieve alone. Lord, I do pray for those here who are feeling the loss of a loved one in such an individual way. God, meet them in that. I'll never understand. I'll never be able to say the right thing to them, but you do. Be there for them. God, I pray for those whom you are calling out of their grief. God, give them the courage to be able to leave that season of grief behind. Give them meaningful service in your kingdom so that they may dedicate themselves to serve the one who has overcome death for us. Because Lord, surely you are worthy. Death has no victory because of you, not because of us, but because of you. Thank you for calling us into your service. Amen.